Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Podcast, episode 125. I'm Rachel Lyon here with host Eric Trexler. Good morning, Eric. How you doing? Good morning, Rachel. I'm doing great as always. Love well, Mondays. You're, you're looking good too. You're looking good, my friends. <laughs> we, we, we won't call HR on that one. Let's, let's yeah, keep yeah, let's keep going. Let's keep going. <laughs> uh, so I'm excited for our guest today. We've got Tom Kellerman here. He's the head of cybersecurity strategy for VMware. Uh, he's vice chair for the Cyber Investigations Advisory Board for the United States Secret Service, which I definitely want to dig into. Uh, and he's also a Wilson Center Global Fellow for Cyber Policy. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, VMware recently or semi-recently acquired Carbon Black. How is that working today? Yeah, so about 18 months ago, we were acquired by VMware, and we became the security division of VMware. So essentially, all of the Carbon Black capabilities you might be familiar with, from application control to EDR to next-gen AV, those analytics are being integrated into the larger fabric of VMware. Uh, things like vSphere now has workspace security, I mean, workload security. You've got uh, Workspace ONE that has detection response capabilities now, and even Horizon VDI, you've got secure cloning, all based off of the behavioral anomaly detection yep. capabilities of Carbon Black. Awesome. Can't wait to see what this results in, Tom. Yes. We often talk about the, the, the uh, building security in from the ground up. Right. Yeah. So infusing security into the virtualization stack, the, the OS and things like that. I, I, I hope we see some ma major progress here. Intrinsic security is the vision. It's really yeah. it's modern zero trust that has to go beyond identity and endpoints all the way into the infrastructure itself. Yeah. And the goal should really be um, decreasing dwell time and suppressing an adversary unbeknownst to an adversary. So can can you detect, deceive, divert, contain and hunt an adversary? unbeknownst to the adversary. That's kind of the goal. Uh, the infrastructure defends itself. Yeah, it'll be love, interesting to that. see over time if if the industry continues to go this direction or, or how quickly we go in this direction maybe is the better way of describing it. Well, given the fact that I America is dealing with a cyber insurgency, I hope we move faster. The challenge in the industry is there's really a lack of cooperation in the industry that we all see each other as competitors, but the real competition is, is essentially the Russian speaking dark web. Um, and, and we really pay attention to that. It would be very nice for Rachel and I to be out of business. Rachel, we could talk about the beach or, I mean, think about the <laughs> podcast we could do if the security problem was solved. That'd be amazing. I'd have a lot more free space in my head too. <laughs> yeah, it's 82 degrees today. The sand was fluffy. I mean, what a great podcast. Well, and you're in Florida too now, right? Are you finally? Well, I am, but I'm in, I'm in a, just, just for the month, but I'm in a, I'm in a room. I'm in a house basically. Right. Doing a cybersecurity podcast. I'm not at the beach. I'd be at the beach. If, <laughs> if, Tom, if we solved this, if we, if we embedded security and everything and it just worked really well, I'd just be at the beach. All day long. Well, I'll be concise enough so you can go. Go out to the beach. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. We've got a major industry problem that we have to deal with first. Keeps us and, all employed. And speaking of which, though, I would love to dig into uh, the Cyber Investigations Advisory Board for the United States Secret Service, because yeah. I, 
I don't know that anybody's ever really thought about cyber and secret service or that being at the forefront. Can What does this advisory board do? <laughs> so for those who aren't familiar with the history of the secret service, they were created uh, essentially right after the Civil War to deal with counterfeit currency. And then only after the assassination of McKinley did they move into protective responsibilities for dignitaries and and leaders of the country. Um, But they have been laser focused on financial crime investigations and they've been the tip of the spear for all financial crime investigations since the Civil War. And so as money has now become digital ever since essentially 1995, um, they are the ones investigating all the bank heists, um, the North Korean, you know, cryptocurrency money laundering events, et cetera. They created, they stood up this board for the first time in the history of the Secret Service to do two things. One would be to modernize the mission of the Secret Service from both a cyber crime investigations perspective, as well as a protection perspective. And then the other was really, how do we disrupt and dismantle the dark web economy of scale and put pressure on the cyber crime cartels that are merely growing in power as the pandemic has been gasoline to the fire of of the Silicon Valley of the East, I'll call it. You always think about the FBI when you think about the dark web, and but you're saying the Secret Service many times will take the lead on this. They take the lead on all financial crime investigations that don't have a, an intelligence or counterintelligence dynamic or component. Wow. So is, is that division or group of the Secret Service I, w- I would imagine it'd have to be exploding with headcount and budget and right. taskings and problems and everything wish, else that comes with it. I wish, you know, part, part of the board's job is to advocate that they have, they be given greater authorities and greater resources. The challenge of the Secret Service still is that, you know, special agents have to maintain both roles, both protection and cybercrime or financial crime investigation. Wow. But one thing they're doing that's quite unique is that they've merged the financial crimes task forces and they've merged the electronic crimes task forces, which exists in every major city in the country. And they're expanding them internationally so that you have a public-private partnership between Secret Service, local law enforcement, and heads of cybersecurity for both financial sector participants as well as IT firms um, to really go after and create a collective force uh, to disrupt the dark web. You um, is so as part of this advisory board, I, I see that your your team have put together a report called Modern Bank Heists. And before we started recording, you had mentioned that you can kind of look to the sophistication of, of how cyber criminals attack financial markets or financial institutions as kind of this indicator of what's to come for government agencies or, or enterprises. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, Specifically, it is insightful and it creates foreshadowing as it relates to the Russian-speaking threat actor community and cyber cartels of Eastern Europe, as they are the most prolific uh, adversaries of the financial sector. But as we've seen over the past seven or eight years, there is a pox mafioso that exists between the cybercrime cartels of Eastern Europe and the regime. And they are used and treated as as national assets, and they are... uh, they act out as cyber militias, target the West in order to maintain their untouchable status, but also to pay homage to the regime. I, I wrote a report just last week called Iron Rain, which describes this phenomenon. Um, but the modern bank heist report, uh, it's going to be issued in, a, in two weeks. Um, it is a seminal report. It's been written, uh, produced it four years in a row now. And it's I interview over 126 CISOs at major financial institutions around the world and really challenge them to 
describe to me what's keeping them up at night and how their architectures are failing against the threat and what they want to do to prioritize um, intrusion suppression going forward. But unlike, you know, Capone and, and Bugsy Siegel and, and the mobsters, you know, the cartel of, uh, of old days, what you're saying is they really have nation state support. Nation states are leveraging them almost as a cutout to allow for behaviors, and then they just don't pursue and prosecute. They're used as traditional proxies for the antics of the regime. Um, and they're also used to offset economic sanctions. Um, North Korean crews, Russian crews, yeah. uh, Iranian crews are, are regularly used to target the financial sector to offset economic sanctions uh, from the West. So in North Korea's case, hey, team, go get me some money so I can do what I need to do. And North Korea's technological sophistication and the organization of their cyber crime community has been dramatically enhanced thanks to technology transfer from Russia. Same reason you see the missile specs on, on their ICBMs mirroring that of old Russian tech. Same mm -hmm. reason that their military are carrying, you know, Kalashnikovs on the rest of it. It's the same premise. It's just tech transfer from their ally, Mother Russia. Yeah. Big business. Very big business. And I mean, that gets into an interesting point you had also mentioned earlier, Tom, is, you know, looking at every, the different countries seem to have a, a different rationale for attack. For, for example, you often hear Russia and China, you know, I think recently Microsoft had attributed uh, China as part of their business email compromise. I think they're calling it Huffinium, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, but I, I think sometimes that gets lost for folks on, you know, each country has its own um, kind of perspective of why they're making attacks and, and what that different landscape looks like. So when we see Russia and China, what are those differences really as it relates to the U.S. and, and benefits they get from executing these kind of huge blast radius attacks uh, to, to find their high value targets? So the Russian modus operandi is specific to a stratagem imposed by General Gerasimov, who runs Strategic Command. Um, he was tasked by President Putin to come up with a, a strategy to get revenge against the West for Glasnost, as well as to reassert their hegemonic powers in the world and the region. And the two, two pillars of that strategy were, one is the Achilles heels of the West are, are dependence on technology. This is back in 2013, he gave this speech at a resort in, in the Black Sea. And then the other part is public opinion. Um, our institutions are only as strong as public opinion. And so as we've seen, <laughs> I don't need to get into it. <laughs> um, both of those things have been successfully undermined and exploited. Um, but they knew also that they didn't have the technical firepower to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the NSA or toe-to-toe -to -toe with Silicon Valley. Um, but they knew that they also had these assets. They had these cyber criminal cartels and crews that were successfully targeting banks. So they called upon them uh, and they explicitly rolled out these three rules. You know, you will not hack anything within the sovereign boundaries of what was, you know, the Soviet bloc. Um, you will share anything of interest or access to anything that is of interest to us. And then when called upon to be patriotic, you will go after these targets in exchange, you're untouchable. And when you China, say within the boundaries right. of the Soviet bloc, you're excluding Ukraine now in the modern time. Yes. Yeah. Although there are some prolific Estonia Ukrainian hacker crews who are, um, they, they miss being part of Russia. And just like you have Ukrainians, you know, in South Ossetia and, and other places in, in Crimea who are more aligned with the, you know, the historical relevance of Russia. So right. it really varies. Interesting. And I think you, you spoke in the almost, it came across to me as almost past tense, but this is 
this has been going on for a while. It continues today. It does, and viscerally yeah. so, because yeah. they've, they've truly utilized the construct of island hopping, or as people are saying, supply chain attacks to their benefit. The reason why I call it island hopping and not a supply chain attack is no matter how they get to you, just realize that they will then use your digital transformation to attack your constituency. So you don't need to be part of the software supply chain because when your government agency X and you've been penetrated that way, they're now going to turn your website and your network to attack, you know, citizens of the U.S. and other government employees. And that's so happening 38 percent of the time, 38 percent of the time when organizations get hit, they are then in turn, their infrastructure is being commandeered to attack their constituencies. Meaning their website, their emails, you name it. Their email with the, you know, O365 environments commandeered to target significant executives and politicians. Their their website or their mobile apps are now become watering holes. You know, watering holes aren't limited to websites. Mobile apps can be turned into watering holes as well. And then the networks themselves, because of the trust, the implicit trust through the TIC program of specific ports and the traffic that moves through them. Um, so they're using our own trust against us. So what do you recommend that? I mean, as we continue with digital transformation, we're probably the most advanced nation in the world digitally puts us most at risk, right? What do you recommend? What do we do? Okay. Well, let's begin what we shouldn't do. And that is, you know, most, okay. of, the, most of the standards out there for cybersecurity are, you know, backward looking. Um, and they are yeah. specific to creating the ideal fortification, and they are really focused on prevention model. Um, compliance, building big walls, we're right. saying the same thing, right? Exactly, right? And so I think that the architectural model that we should espouse to is more of like that of a supermax prison, um, where the prisoner is, is resource constrained, where they can't freely move laterally, where it's difficult for them to get out of the infrastructure, and you have complete visibility and telemetry into all their activities. That is the model that we need to subscribe to. And that's really extending zero trust beyond identities and endpoints all the way into the infrastructure, but manifesting security in a very clandestine way, such that the adversary is not aware that the environment is shifting and suppressing them in real time. Because if the adversary becomes aware that you're onto them, they will become more punitive. Destructive attacks are up 118%, and they are typically not the singular purpose of an event. They are actually part of what's called counter-incident response, where, hey, you just dis dis disabled my command and control, I'm gonna drop a wiper in your system, or I'm gonna drop a piece of ransomware, not Petya style in your system to cripple you, because how dare you come on to me? And, and not only that, I'm gonna punish you going forward. Yeah, you 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 attack my front, you burn the city, I'm gonna drop paratroops in your homeland and, and burn it down. That's right. Okay, so t take us through that then. I mean, if, if, if you're restricting the capabilities of the users, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, so if I'm not doing it accurately, let me know, but you're really saying what you need to do is control what comes out of the infrastructure, correct? Or what, what's you used in the infrastructure. You need to inhibit lateral movement within the infrastructure. And you need to apply things like just-in-time administration, and you need to integrate, you know, your endpoint okay. protection platforms with your network detection platforms, and, and you need to have the capacity to deploy deception technology, and you need to make sure that workloads defend themselves against threats, and then you need to assure that, um, you know, all of your VDI environments can can be created and manifested through secure cloning, um, and then okay. even okay. device management systems they themselves need to become more intelligent. They shouldn't just manage the device; um, they should dynamically manage a device specific to risk, not only to the device but of the device to the infrastructure, and specific to behavioral anomaly. So, the average listener who is in 
in InfoSec his head probably just exploded because they're probably like, where do I start? That sounds <laughs> awesome, Tom. Where, where do we start? Because we've got all this legacy crap that we've got to keep running. I can't just bring in VMware to solve all of our problems or any vendors who cares who the vendors are. Yeah. How, how do I get to like, how do I put a five or 10 year strategy out there, which could be too long, by the way, how do I put that out there and then execute against that? Well, first I'd like to state that those poor folks in InfoSec who are under resourced yeah. and who don't have sufficient authorities and who are still being governed by the, the CIO team and the IT team, um, they need to, to promulgate a new message, which is worst case scenario is all the work we've done to digitally transform will be used to attack our customer set. Yeah. Success in that is limiting that from happening, but success is also decreasing dwell time. So to achieve that, the first thing they should do is conduct robust weekly threat hunts across their infrastructure, threat hunts that will justify greater authority, greater budgets. And those threat hunts should be the primary focus of any additional security spend. Number two, that they need oh, to- Hold on, I want to stop you there for one second. Sure. How many of the customers you deal with or organizations you deal with do threat hunting? And if they do, what percentage of their spend or time is it in your estimation? Just rough. It depends on the sector. Um, so okay. in the financial sector, um, close to 70% of the banks are doing weekly threat hunts. Okay. Um, those same, same institutions are going to increase their cybersecurity budget by 10 to 20% this year uh, because they get it. Um, and they're spending it on threat hunting, not just building bigger walls. That's right. Oh, they're okay. also, they're, they're, their primary focus is of investment. And I'm giving you a little preview of the modern bank heist report here. Yeah. Primary focus of investment are XDR, um, workload security and container security um, okay. because of the way things are changing. Um, okay. that, that all being said, you know, conduct the threat hunts, then yeah, segment, number two. segment your networks. You got to segment. You can't have static segmentation. You got to do that ASAP. Number three, integrate or make sure there's some sort of seamless visibility between your network detection response capabilities and your endpoint protection capabilities. Number four is yes, pay attention to container security. Pay attention to how Kubernetes is amazing, but if, if misused, it could create a systemic threat or a wildfire in your infrastructure. And then lastly, you know, just-in-time administration. No one should have administrative rights in perpetuity. This isn't about just limiting privileges. This is even sysadmins should only have administrative rights specific to a period of time and a task. Because in the end, as we all know, the adversary is going to hunt that super user and take over their account. And now you have a digital insider running amok. And they're um, creating new account. As an admin, you can do anything. That's right. Right. Yeah. So is the two-person rule an effective technique to reduce the amount of of uh, admin lateral movement or, or, or reduce the power of a single admin, in your opinion? I, I think it's effective. Also, I think there's technologies out there that allow you to apply just-in-time administration uh, in a scalable okay. fashion. Um, this is coupled with, I, I do believe that after a security event, uh, administrative privileges should immediately be toggled down. Much like after a security event, if you're going to deploy EDR on a system that maybe it didn't exist before, you should put it in monitor only mode. Um, because if you turn it fully on, the adversary knows that you're on to them. Uh, one thing that I find crazy, but I guess emblematic of our dependence on technology is I see IR teams uh, using Slack or Teams to communicate vis-a-vis -vis an event, right. which is right. nuts to me. 
But they're like, yeah, well, we're not using email to do it. And I'm like, are you crazy? Yeah, no, I, after after uh, UNC 2452, that's what I'll call it this week, we saw a number of our customers and prospects say, I can't communicate with you over email unless we can do encrypted email. Like that was, that was so call me or, but I agree with you. Like, what about Slack? What about Teams? I mean, I wouldn't do it. The adversary is <laughs> no. efficient. I, I really would recommend, you know, Signal or Wicker or phone calls, um, something, you know, out of bound. But, you know, it is what it is. The other challenge that we need to face is that adversaries now, as part of counter-incident response, are more likely to manipulate the value of timestamps and they're more likely to delete logs. Well, you're like, how do I deal with that? Okay, well, look across. If you think a device was compromised, are there any gaps in the logs? Because then you're really, yes, you, you're dealing with an adversary that, that has deleted logs. And that device- So you're almost looking, instead of looking for something in the log, you're looking for the absence of something. You're looking exactly. for blocks of time where somebody wiped. And from a hunting perspective, that could be a tell. Yeah, look at Cosmic Gale. I think it's one of the more interesting facets of solar winds. This, this code basically automated the deletion of logs specific to when the adversary was active on the host and then automatically deployed or provisioned a secondary C2 on a sleep cycle in image files through steganography. That's that's bad. Um, so talk about that for our, our listeners who, who aren't familiar. Take us through that. Like, what did they do? Why did they do it? Why was it so important to us? It was really there. Will we see it again? Bad. Yeah, we, we keep talking about the other elements or pieces of malware associated with that campaign, but this was the secondary payload deployed in the system to make sure that they always could get back in. And so how do you deal with that? Well, you look for gaps in logs. You look for PNG files that are large, that are sitting in the Outlook mailbox that shouldn't be there, but no one ever looks for that. Um, because that's PNG that, being an image file. That's right. Yeah. Large PNG files specifically, though, they weren't using JPEGs. Um, that basically was their C2 infrastructure, their secondary C2 that was on a sleep cycle. And that, that goes to my other point, like do not immediately terminate command and control if you find it. I know that sounds sacrilegious, but trust me, there's going to be a second C2 on a sleep cycle when you're dealing with Russia or China. And, and what comes next will become more punitive. I can't tell you how many exercises I've been involved with, both real and and drills, where the and the military is the best at this. The, the, the general officer or the colonel will come and say, disconnect everything. Take us off the net. Like that is the immediate reaction. It's such a kinetic binary type of visceral response, I feel. But it's like unplug everything and we'll figure it out then. Yeah. So you just, yeah, so I hear you. So what you're saying is don't disconnect C and command and control. Allow that C2 to continue, watch, understand what's happening so you have a better idea. You need to get visibility and full telemetry on how far they've spread in your infrastructure. It's not limited to PowerShell. They're misusing WMI and corporate G drives, the whole nine. Um, yeah. Look, the, the name of the game for these adversaries now, and the reason why traditional antivirus won't stop them, or even IPS systems, is that it's all about you know compile on host and execute in memory. Um, and when they do that, they get around a, a number of security capabilities that exist out there. And it's all, all about automating the dismantling of security agents and tools. So to this simple point, how many times do you come across a government agency or a major commercial entity that's been hit, and then they say, well, they deactivated your security agent. Well, what did you name the security agent? Well, we named it. We named it Falcon. We named it right. <laughs> Trend Micro. We why'd you name it? or whatever it may be. Yeah. What are you doing? So um, 
we need to become better at our own OPSEC as we def- how we defend, as, and we need to become more clandestine in how we hunt. Um, and those are the real starting points for dealing with the insurgency that government agencies are facing right now. Yeah, so I, I, I told you, Rachel, I wouldn't go here, but I'm going to for a second. We talked about UNC 2452, or let's call it holiday bear in this segment. Um, I think that was detected on the 9th, disclosed by the 13th of December. I don't think we have a report for any of the nine government agency, U.S. government agencies that that have announced they 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 were susceptible. I don't think we have a single report that I'm aware of to this date, three months later, of what happened. What do they know? What did they do? Like publicly available. Tom, I could be wrong. You may know I, something. I, look, the question that we all should expect to be answered by those government agencies is not, did they get in? How far did they go? It's No, it's what how happened. How can you guarantee me that your agency infrastructure isn't being used to attack other agencies right now or hasn't been used I, to attack I don't other think they. I don't think they can. I, I think the real question, I'll break it down to basics, like first grade level, Rachel. What happened? Yeah. And I suspect we don't know yet, or we may never know. And Tom, to your point, are they still in? And what are they, they doing? Are the we clean? To attack? Yeah, that's that's what's concerning. That's why I always call it a home invasion. It's not a question of the house being burglarized. Are they still in the house? And do they want to escalate when you're having your family dinner? Yeah, the, the industry came back with all these IOCs and patches. And, you know, we're, we're going to look for blah, blah, blah to prevent them from getting in. And, and I just want to scream sometimes. Maybe I'll do it on the podcast one day. It's like they're in. They're already in. They're likely still in. Highly likely, by the way. Yes. What are you doing about it? Do you know? It's crazy to me. I am heartened, though, that we have uh, real leadership in cyber now. Um, Agreed in the US government and that they are giving, they are being given the authority to take the gloves off and how they manifest that, God bless them for doing it. I don't I don't care. But you know, there's a lot of limitations that we have as, as private sector companies. Um, you know, why, for example, why can't I destroy my data when it leaves my environment? Or why can't I track my data when it leaves my environment? Or why can't I encrypt and harden my data with a new algorithm when it leaves my environment? Because you can't, because of, you know, existing law, but I'm not talking about active defense right now, but we can do these things with our cars and our iPhones, (laughs) but we can't do this with our data and our intellectual property and our national secrets. Right. Well, hopefully we get there. I I agree with you. The new administration has definitely made some, some good strides, initial opening strides, I would say. Yeah. In this race. Very thoughtful personalities at the top now for cybersecurity specifically. Experienced. Yes. Absolutely. I, I read a quote today, too, and just to kind of uh, as you kind of start wrapping up, but um, from uh, Philip Fire, I said, the good guys are getting tired and having this conversation. I'm actually tired as well because there's so much to be done. And and when we look ahead, Tom, I mean, how many years are we from from getting to that clandestine place, you know, where where we actually have, a, you know, we're one step ahead uh, of these guys here, um, especially when there's so much hyper aggression. I, I, you know, from your incident response report, it was what, 80%, 82% of adversaries fight back to maintain persistence. I mean, they are gunning for it. And uh, so, so how many years do you think if you wanted to ballpark before we get ahead of them? Four or five. And, but a large part of the success will involve the Cyber Command, the NSA, and the FBI, and the Cyber Fraud Task Force is really taking it to the adversary. Um, we, we have to stop 
playing defense as a nation. Um, and we need to begin to put pressure on them to improve their own OPSEC um, right. and then dismantle some of their capacity to tendril into our infrastructure and, and, and colonize American cyberspace. So I'm hoping that's going to happen um, from a from the perspective of the industry. I think we're getting better at visibility and telemetry. I think we're getting better at um, sharing information and becoming yes. more collaborative for threat intel. Um, but I still think we have a bit of blinders on in terms of what we share, how we share it, and our perspective of worst case scenario. Um, did they get in? Now, I don't think that's your worst case, um, to my earlier points. Right. No, I agree with you. And I, I think it'll be it'll have to be somewhat nonlinear. Um, you know, it, it's it's not cyber on cyber. It's diplomatic. It's th there are other, right. you know, whether, whether they're financial consequences or whatever it may be, uh, we are stronger in other areas where our adversaries are weaker. And Agreed. And I think that we could take a, a page from Putin's playbook on disinformation. Um, yeah. We begin. We need to begin to undermine the trust that exists between these cyber crime cartels. Uh, whether it makes it look like they're part of, uh, you know, they're, they're CIs for the U.S. government, confidential informants, or um, how do we put pressure on the alternative payment channels and virtual currencies that are associated in cybercrime conspiracies and cyber spy conspiracies? How do we modernize forfeiture and anti-money laundering to take that money to fund critical infrastructure protection, to, to fund the hiring of more uh, special agents for the Secret Service, et cetera, et cetera? I think we've, we've, we've touched it. Uh, we've begun to do some interesting things, but much more aggressive action must be done to to follow the money, to forfeit the money, and put pressure on the trust, the ephemeral trust that exists in those communities. I love that. My mind, I when you said too. that, yes. Tom, my mind said we should become, you know, criminal actors, almost impersonate them and discredit them, like like go after Russia, make it look yes. like you know they were they're targeting indiscriminately. Like make the make the governments of these nations who take advantage of organized crime question supporting organized crime. And again, not the private sector, but the government, the U.S. government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm not thinking Rachel and I are gonna. Let me go buy another. Cable. We're gonna, you know, I'll boost the cable modem access in this in this house I'm renting right now, and we'll take care of it for you. Don't worry about it. Yes, the government, not private sector. Hacking back should not be a a private sector function. But I, I, I love that idea that, you know, just discredit, like a, a disinformation to a disinformation campaign. Yep. I love it. I, I would love to have a whole episode just on that. Voice of long. America, we'll yeah. call it Cyber America, you know, this, uh, you know, part two or something. I don't know. That's a great, that's, that's a great, I, I've never thought about that, but that is a, a great way to look at helping with the problem here. Yeah, I love it. All right. Well, uh, with that, I think, uh, where do you go from there? So I think uh, we're going to call it uh, to today's episode, episode 125 with the awesome Tom Kellerman. Thank you so much for the insights. This has been a fascinating conversation. And I think we've got a, a great topic for uh, a second, a part two here uh, in the next few months that I'd love to revisit. So <laughs> yeah, Tom, thanks, thanks again for coming on. This was good. Yeah. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, guys. Till next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 